until dawn. Welcome to Level with Emily Reese. This is music by Stefan Schutz for Yonder, the Cloud Catcher Chronicles. It's the dark end of night, but the compass brings me light. More from Stefan in a moment, but this particular episode is good for bringing back Holly Harrison. She's our gaming buddy and good friend here in town. So here's why I wanted Holly on this show. It, it was just funny because when I realized that I was going to be interviewing Stefan, the first thing I did was look up the game, you know, obviously. Mm-hmm. And I started reading about it, and it said something like, you know, farming and interacting and nothing about, like, shooting or killing <laughs> or, you know, any of the things that I like. But I know that <laughs> those were all things that made me think of you. And literally, like, right away, I texted you and I was like, you you should check this game out because it sounds like it's right up your alley. And how did that work out for you? <laughs> <laughs> It worked out well. Um, <laughs> first, <laughs> I, I want to acknowledge that I love that you were reading about a game, and in your mind, you're like, this sounds terrible. No. I need to tell Holly about it. <laughs> no, that is, that. don't <laughs> mince my words, because... Or rather, this sounds like something I would not like. You know, I wouldn't even go that far. It sounds actually, I've very much considered playing it, because it sounds really relaxing, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it it seems like it's beautiful, colorful, um, mm-hmm. chill, non-threatening, and you know I'd be down for some of the farming and stuff. I farm <laughs> in all kinds of games that I play, so it's true. So you know, true. It's it, an element of games that also have guns or yeah, magic that you kill but people I, with. But I knew that you would probably be the more likely of the two of us to play it sooner. And so that's right. that's where that went. It wasn't like, oh my god, I would never play this. Not even. <laughs> that wasn't the case. So no. so yeah. So tell us about the game in you know yeah. a little more detail. So yonder is like you said, a beautiful and relaxing little little but not little open world adventure game. You can't die. You befriend animals, you collect lost cats, um, you farm, you change your hair color, and if you do it enough times, you get a trophy. <laughs> and it's, uh, yeah, it's really healing. It's really, it's nice. It's, <laughs> which is I, the blandest word, but <laughs> it, it feels it feels right. Yeah, so, like, how much time have you put into it? I mean, you know, you don't have to be too specific, but just, I mean... Tell us more about playing it. Sure. I think I've put in more time than you're supposed to. I actually, <laughs> 20 minutes ago, when you said you wanted to talk to me, I <laughs> quickly <laughs> jumped over and looked at a review to get some perspective. Mm-hmm. And and the re- review said, like, oh, it's five hours, generously 10. And I was <laughs> like, nope. <laughs> that's, that's way less time than I think I've spent in this game huh. and maybe I'm just not good at managing my map and maybe I'm just bopping around all over this open world instead of doing things in concentrated areas like someone who's good at project management would do. <laughs> um, but 
Yeah, I've put in quite a lot of time. Um, I, I It definitely scratches that itch of checking things off a to-do list. So <laughs> f- fetch quests in, in most games are... Uh, I mean, it's the thing that everyone complains about. I, it's if you got just a soundbite of things that annoy gamers, fetched quests would probably be uh, <laughs> high on that list. <laughs> and, and that's essentially it's a lot of what this game is. E- even so, there's something really satisfying about getting a big long to-do list and doing all of it, all while getting to experience this really vibrant world full of cute animals and different environments. Well, Holly Harrison, thank you so much for chatting with us about Yonder. Anytime. Until dusk will I walk It's the dark end of night But the compass green So Stefan Schutz did the music for Yonder, and we of course talk about that in great detail. But Stefan also just finished a book about audio in VR and AR, and it was really cool to talk with him about what is happening in audio these days. He talks about the psychology of music, how audio in VR opens up an entirely new set of possibilities. One note for you about the music, though. We can only get three tracks to use in this episode, so there's not a ton of music in the show. There are a couple musical examples tossed in from the classical world, so we could highlight certain concepts that Stefan talked about. And we'll end with a track that Stefan wrote for a game called Nicktoons Unite. All of those will be listed in the playlist, along with Stefan's three tracks, on our Patreon page. Yonder is, um, I actually, I mean, everybody says this about every game they work on practically, but I, I really do think Yonder is really quite special. And for me, the core of that is that the game has no violence, no combat, and no threat. And so for me, the very core of this game is about adventure, exploration, wonder, and a joyful innocence. And I think that's the the thing that ultimately appealed to me. And and I'll, I'll quickly sort of um, explain that I actually almost turned the project down. Really? Because I was, in, I was incredibly busy at the time. Mm. And um, I, we were approached and the, the, the developers sort of said, oh, we, we, we saw that you just finished doing all the sound for a game called Armello. And, um, you know, would you, would you be able to, to work on Yonder for us? And um, it wasn't that I didn't like the game. It was just that I was incredibly busy. And they mm-hmm. sent through a demo and I looked at it and I was like, oh, this is really pretty and really lovely. <laughs> and I was, I was kind of trying to, I was trying to be good and not take on too much work to ensure that the jobs that I did do, I could do a great job on. Sure. Um, by not being uh, overworked. So I was sort of looking for, a, I guess, a get-out-of-jail-free card. And so I, I had this last question when we when we met up. And the question in my mind was, you know, uh, there's a particular style that I would r- I've always wanted to write and that I would really love to write for, for this project that I thought would be appropriate. And so I said to them, you know, look, I've, I've, I've got a style in mind, but what's this type of music and style that you want for, for this project? And um, 
the um, uh, one of the developers said to me, well, we really want to bring forward the, the joyous innocence of it. So we want it to have a, a Studio Ghibli Miyazaki style of music. And so my response was, oh, bugger, because that was exactly what I had in mind. And so I had no choice but to accept this. And I, I'm eternally glad that I did because it has been just an utter delight to work on. And because also I was engaged to do all of the sound design as well. And so it allowed me to create an entire audio world that is where the, the music and sound design is not just sympathetic, but they, they kind of work together to create this this overall sort of, um, you know, sonic adventure. It must have been nice to be able to do all of the sound then instead of just music or just the effects, right? Just as you're saying, to be able to blend that must have been a really neat opportunity to do some cool stuff. It, whilst it obviously means you're doing more work, I, I <laughs> really do like doing it this way because what it means is, like I created rather a crazy uh, sound environment in that there are, there are over 40 different species of birds and insects and the, it even goes through kind of pretend migratory patterns where the birds that you hear in summer are different to what you hear in spring and winter and same with the insects and like they're all they're all <laughs> positioned in in the trees so um, it's it's not like a stereophile as you walk through trees there will be birds and insects around you but if you walk out of the trees and into the grassland you leave all those behind and so that literally is it's, it's very spatial and the techniques I used are pretty much exactly the same that you would use for like a VR experience etc but it meant that I could do cute little things like the crickets at night that, that are making sound at the bottom of the trees. When you walk up to a tree, if you get too close, you scare the crickets and they stop making noise. <laughs> Just so like real all life. All of these things. Well, exactly. But yeah. these things were designed to highlight the sense of innocence. Uh, like all the music that I've written at night is written in the same, exactly the same chord progression for all the nighttime music, specifically to bring forward a sense of familiarity, security, and comfort mm. so that night is never seen as a threat. And having the crickets just sort of be quiet like that is just one of those, again, one of those wondrous things that a child might do. And you can just, you know, you can just see a child sort of like, you know, walking up and stomping and then walking back and waiting for the cricket to make noise and walking up and stomping. And, and it, becomes <laughs> yeah. a, it becomes a fun adventure. So it, so it was all part of, from, from the sound point of view, I could do things to, to, to support and highlight the, the entire narrative, which, which is, in my mind, what audio is supposed to do. Mm -hmm. And so by doing both the sound and the music, it allows me to, to craft the whole thing and complement both elements of it rather than sort of having to respond to somebody else's work. It doesn't mean that I don't love collaborating. I mean, collaborating with, with other creative people is amazing, but it can give you different advantages in different ways. Sure, sure. Uh, so talk to me a little bit about uh, more about the sound world that you created because you mentioned Studio Ghibli in Japan and, uh, you know, all of their, just the, the music that Joe Hisaishi, and I have no idea if I ever say that correctly, but I love his That's music. how I pronounce it. Okay, wonderful. That's how I pronounce it. <laughs> and, and you actually worked in anime for, for a little bit there too in Japan, right? Yes, yeah, so I, I was um, fortunate enough to um, my my girlfriend at the time, who I'm very happy to say is now my wife. Excellent. She was going to Japan for a year to teach English because for her it was a bit of self discovery and she wanted to grow and 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 she's now a, a game writer and I think this was part of her having experiences to make her a better writer. So she went off to Japan and she was going to be there for 12 months. And less than six months in, I just went, nope, 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 nope. And, and just <laughs> packed up everything and I went over there. <laughs> and so we ended up spending three years over there. Oh, wow. And so for two of those years, 
I was living with her up in this remote country town up in northern Japan, which was a wonderful experience. Oh, but for 12 months, I was in Tokyo and I was working for an anime studio in Tokyo um, that basically was, um, and, and anime is quite an interesting industry over there. They, they, the studio sort of break up the sections, like one studio will do the characters and one will do the special effects and another one will do the backgrounds. And the studio that I worked for was one that did all the backgrounds for some very, very well-known, like Gundam and Full Metal Alchemist and all <laughs> sorts of things like that. Cool. And so that I was helping them out with um, R&D for doing sound stuff. but my time in Japan was very significant because I'd always loved um, Joe Hisaishi and, and Miyazaki's work. Mm-hmm. But spending time in Japan helped put a lot of that into context. And it helped me to understand why a lot of the Ghibli stuff was the way it was. And, and quite often the sense of wonder about certain things. And so for me, Uh, And in fact, uh, one of the things that was just absolutely wonderful about being in Japan is that we were in Japan. It was actually in the last couple of months before we came back to Australia, but we were in Japan and on opening day, we saw uh, Ponyo at the cinema on opening day in Tokyo, which was wonderful. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's one of those bucket list things. Yeah, right. To see a a, a Ghibli (laughs) film on the day it comes out. And it was totally in Japanese. And my Japanese has never been that good. But but this is the thing, it didn't matter. Yeah. Because the way those stories are told is Uh so well done that the actual individual words that are being said really didn't matter as far as understanding the story. Mm-hmm. And at one point in the story, um, the, 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 the little boy character is, is pushing Ponyo in a boat through, like the whole town is flooded. And, and the camera angle sort of pushing, looking down at his feet moving through the water. And for a split second there, I went, oh, something bad's going to happen. And then I stopped myself and went, no, it's not. This is a Ghibli film. <laughs> you know, I mean, sure, sometimes bad things will happen, but, but there's no... There's no ominous underlying threat in most of them. And mm-hmm. the main thing was is that the music was was very clearly saying to me, no, it's totally fine. The oh, music yeah. was, 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 was telescoping exactly what was going on. And it was all about adventure and innocence and wonder and excitement. And this was why when it came to writing the music for Yonder, it was really was the, the core inspiration there because, and this is kind of an interesting sort of musical point, the one other type of music that is done quite well to, to, to display innocence is a lot of different uh, Disney things. Sure. Disney does it quite well. And, and, and I'll include Pixar under that banner. And when I first started writing the music, I was playing around with different orchestrations, different instruments, you know, which instruments mm-hmm. do what I want to use. And one of the things I started initially was putting harp in there, doing these lovely sort of runs of them and all this sort of stuff. Because sure. harp is very good at that. Except I found I had to stop doing that because putting in those harp runs, literally I could get a piece of music that was sounding really quite nice and ghibli and i put in a harp run and it would almost instantly make it Disney. Really? (laughs) Yeah, it was amazing. So putting in a harp glissando literally just grabbed it and said, nope, this is now Disney. (laughs) You're not getting it back. (laughs) And so I found that uh, using Celeste, which is a little like a a metal sounding um, instrument and um, harp, I had to be very careful with because it would slide across into sounding too Disney and not enough Ghibli. And so that was a really interesting lesson to learn as I was originally developing the music. Yeah. And I was curious, you know, how you do score Innocence. I mean, you know, you mentioned harp and then you brought up Celesta. And the other thing, you know, I, I would think you often hear would be maybe glockenspiel, all those, you know, tinkly bell sounds or 
well, maybe maybe it's harmonic. Maybe you're throwing in a lot of sharp four or something. I, I yeah, talk to me more the about creating that. Thing, I th- it, the, the orchestration or instrumentation is is vital. Pizzicato strings are really really good because they they're light and quite playful. Piano is a, a key, key, key component of uh, Joe Hisaishi's music because he is a, is a wonderful piano player. And so there is that element. But one of the other elements is I use – I actually wrote up a thing on Facebook recently, and it was just me mumbling you know, brain ideas. Um, and it was just something that I'd thought for quite some time. And I was surprised at the response I got from people. And people were like, yes, this is so accurate. <laughs> and I'll, I'll try and remember it. And it was along the lines of strings – I associate strings with freedom and flight – I associate wind with characters. I associate brass with with power, and so these sorts of things are are actually quite common in the way a lot of Western music is written. Mm-hmm. However, strings being freedom and flight is true, except low strings can be uh, very very powerful, but also can be somewhat ominous. So if you want something to be innocent, I mean, during all the nighttime music that I've written, there's almost never low strings, or if they are, they're very, very gentle. (laughs) During the daytime, I can use low strings a little bit more, but I still have to be careful with them. With brass, I was trained as a horn player and spent five years in the Australian Army as a a musician, as a horn player. And um, so I write a lot of horn music, and horn is lovely because it blends just as well with other brass as it does with woodwind, as it does yep. with strings. Yep. So horns are wonderful because they've, they've got this beautiful, noble character and horns are almost never used to depict nasty things. So when it came to the other brass, one of the things that a lot of people don't understand that if you take a trumpet in isolation, not with its, its artillery battery section behind it, but, but in isolation, a trumpet has a quality of tone by itself that is actually somewhat frail, fragile and vulnerable. So if, if in some of my pieces of music during the day, I would have just a single trumpet line going into its upper register. And this actually sounds, it has similar qualities in some ways to the, the, uh, the classical kind of boy choirist, the solo boy choir who sings, where you've got that, that innocence in the, the young boy's voice that mm-hmm. just, or maybe it's, it's, it's related to the fact that you know that as that boy gets older, his voice is going to crack and will go through that <laughs> vulnerable period. And trumpet has that same sort of thing. It, it can get quite vulnerable as it gets into its upper register. And so by using instruments in a way that exposes some of their vulnerability, it removes a lot of the sense of threat or there being something that's ominous or dangerous, and so that was that was uh, that was a, a a journey of discovery of my own by playing with different instruments and going, yeah, no, that's a little bit too heavy, or that combination there just feels a little bit too ominous, or and and sometimes it wouldn't be the music that I'd written. I'd literally mute one instrument, try another instrument, and go, that's now a lot better, and it was just really so. It was, it was an exercise. The entire thing was an exercise in orchestration sure. as much as it was harmony and melody. Sure. Now, the, these samples are real, or sometimes I get fooled to this day, so. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, the the trick there is, um, I had some people um, point out to me some, some very good um, samples, 
Uh, and I'm not sure that I should necessarily be plugging them or not, but the particular uh, um, brand of samples that I used are outstandingly good and they certainly helped. However, on top of that was the fact that um, one of the pieces of music um, uh, there is one that accompanies a, a sea journey and I think it's actually called the open ocean. And it, it, and I wrote a very sort of cliched sort of sea shanty that is played on a combination of violin and viola. And that is played by a, um, a gentleman in LA called Jeff Ball, who is a wonderful string player and I who I had Jeff. been wanting to work with. I had been wanting to work with Jeff for the longest time. So I was <laughs> delighted to be able to contact Jeff and say, Jeff, I need you and I want you to write some stuff. And and, and it was great because he, he said he really, really enjoyed it. And so he, he wrote that for me. So that's a uh, live musician. Um, and there was also some uh, pieces where I actually used a live wind player called Kristen Nagus who played oh. oboe flute for me. Yeah. Yeah, she's been on a number of different projects too. She played, yeah. she played with Austin before? Is that what I'm thinking of? I believe she has, yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. So okay. I used her for flute and, and oboe, and again, her playing was beautiful. And then, of course, there's the the um, the main title song, which is sung by one of the most amazing voices. Um, and, and she's actually doing more work in the game industry, which I'm delighted about. And I'm going to work again, I'm going to work with her again at the earliest opportunity. And that is a young woman who used to sing for the Seattle Opera, I believe, and she is now based in L.A., and I think she might actually be singing with the L.A. opera. And that is a young woman called Elizabeth Zaroff. <laughs> she's wonderful. Yeah. I was I like, is he going to say Elizabeth? Amazing. And there you go. She's oh, fantastic. She's, yes. Yeah. Wow. Cool. Cool. Very cool. Yeah. No, I just got such a kick out of the music. And, um, you know, it's interesting that you say you're a horn player because horn players, of course, famously are just known for having such good ears, right? Because horn is not an easy instrument to play. And I mean, being a <laughs> no, trumpet player who, you know, yeah. got shuffled over to horn from time to time in, in uh, you know, middle school and high school and stuff like that, it's, it's not easy. So what do you think that the fact that you, you know, existed for a time as a horn player first, uh, how did that, how does that affect your composition? And, um, you know, just along those lines, what do you think that does for you? Well, I, I technically start as a trumpet player as well, so I, okay. I know exactly. <laughs> I know exactly that journey. And yes, horn is quite tricky in a lot of ways, mm -hmm. but it is also, as I was saying, it's an incredibly versatile instrument in that it has a very vocal quality to it. It really sounds like it's singing in a lot of its register. Mm -hmm. The other thing is, is that horns, and and in fact. Uh, I've been having orchestration lessons for some time now with a lovely gentleman, another gentleman in LA called Jason Poz. And okay. Jason is a marvelous orchestrator. And he pointed out something that, to my embarrassment, I didn't actually realize myself about horns. And he, he actually said, do you understand why horns sound so special? And I was like, well, uh, to be honest, uh, you know, I, I probably don't know what you're about to say. And he said, horns facing backwards there's no direct sound like there is with all the other wind instruments yeah. so what you get is is that when you hear the horn part it's reflected off the back wall of the, the theater or the stage or the or the concert hall and and so it's reverberating sort of from all the way around the edges so it actually has this otherworldly quality and mm. a lot of people describe it as it's almost a little bit like the word of god because it kind of you know it just sort of comes out of the ether sort of thing and so horns quite often are written 
in that way of it's almost like an offstage trumpet. There's a, there's a form uh, called offstage trumpets where you literally have them hiding off in the balcony somewhere or literally offstage. And it's supposed <laughs> to sound like, you know, a military horn, you know, uh, with the, the cavalry's coming from off in the distance. But horns have that as an integral part. Hmm. And so this is one of the reasons why horns will often be used to, you know, the, 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 the music changes, the hero picks themselves up and now you know the bad guys are going to cop it. And <laughs> that, that's quite often accompanied by horns. And I think because of that, I think it, it, it did definitely, it's, it's something that as an orchestral player, and I went to, to college as an orchestral player and I played in the army band as a, well, I mean, it was as a concert band or a military band, but I was, I was embedded deep within the actual ensemble. Horns tend to be positioned up the back. And so what that gives you is a unique perspective because horns don't play all the time. In fact, some of the, the pieces of music I played in the past in orchestra, it'd be like, right, count for 10 pages, play two bars and then count for another 10 pages. <laughs> right. But that's actually, that's actually an incredible, looking back on it, that's actually an incredible education to being a composer because you're spending all your time inside the, it's like you're inside the giant clockwork mechanism, mm -hmm. watching all the cogs do their thing. And you have to focus on all of them because you've got to know when to do your thing. And so it gives you a really good insight as to the, how the different sections in the orchestra function, what they can do, how they can be used. And, and being inside the orchestra is a very unique perspective. And so I honestly think that the, the, the practical performance element of my, my experience, I guess you'd say my career, really, really helped give me insight into, into writing as well. Well, then how did you go from, you know, playing horn and being, you know, classically trained in orchestra? How did you make the switch to being a composer? What was that process like? I think it was inevitable in some ways. I think that from, and, and I can take you back to, to two, two things. One, one the, very, the very cliched one, which a lot of people will, will understand, is I was 10 years old when Star Wars came out and I went and watched <laughs> Star Wars. And my brother for Christmas that year gave me the double vinyl Nice. You know, thing and and seriously, I think I wore the grooves and the records out for, because I listened to that. <laughs> but I can tell you exactly the point, like literally to the date. I could look it up and I can tell you the exact date where I was destined to become involved in music and a creative industry and a composer, and that was due to a film, and it was due to music in a film, um, and it quite literally changed my life and. I didn't make the decision at that point that I was going to be a composer. But what it did do is a lot of people say, and, and I say this myself, a lot of people say that they don't write the music. They're, some, they're almost like a conduit, that the music is there in the ether. And, and, and literally there are pieces of music that I've written and I've listened back to them afterwards and gone, where did that come from? I don't even remember <laughs> writing that. I started like I, I started, and it's almost. And, and I'll point out, I, I, I'm I'm not uh, I'm not a person of faith at all. But 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 drawing on those sorts of the, the the spiritual type things, it's almost like starting to scroll little symbols on a page opens up the universe to allow the music to come through, and mm. the music just comes through by itself. And so, in some ways, I really do feel that that there's times when you start writing music and then it just writes itself. Mm -hmm. But but and so if 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 I was ever introduced to the the whole concept of this, it was when I went and saw a film with a with a friend from school. This is many, many, many years ago. And um I went and saw this film and when we came out of the film, 
Stefan is very, very talkative. I, I love to talk. I, I, I get very <laughs> excited about things. And normally when I come out of a film, I'm all excited and chattery. And I came out of this film and I, I didn't say a word. <laughs> and at the time I had a part-time job. So this is in, in, in beginning of uh, early high school. So beginning, you know, um, I don't know what you call it in, in America. You've got sort of two levels of high school. So it's lower level high school, essentially. Okay. And um, I was doing a job selling papers uh, in, in the evenings. And I walked out of this film, went home, phoned them up and said, I'm sorry, I, I have to quit. <laughs> and, and they were just like, oh, okay, um, why? Well, why are you quitting? I said, like, I can't put it into words. And the reason why I had to quit is because this film and specifically the music for this film showed me what magic was. And from that that instant, I knew I could never, ever do a normal everyday nine to five job in an office because that would kill me because mm. I would literally die inside. And so there's, there is there is a particular scene in this movie where the screen is almost completely black and then the music comes up, the lights come up and it reveals something. And the, the, this is a musical reveal. It's a, a fairly cliched thing where the music does this whole sort of like sunrise effect of a musical reveal. Um, but it was it, it just embodied so much magic for me that I just went, I have to do something that is involved with this. Hmm. And I have to basically say, Jim Henson saved my life because that movie was The Dark Crystal. The main theme from that will pretty much have me in tears at any time because of the significance of that scene. And, and the music that was written, which was Trevor Jones, I believe, is, is just glorious. And the, and the, the scene is when um, the, 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 uh, we get the, the reveal for Olga's cave and the main theme just comes up and it just is this sort of sunrise moment. And it is just so beautiful that that, that actual scene is responsible for me being where I am and doing what I'm doing. Oh, how about that? So with Yonder, let's go back to that for a minute. How much how much music did you write? So uh, if we say just so, sort of pieces that you can sit and listen to, there's over an hour's worth of music, just over an hour's music. But all up, there's probably about 90 minutes worth of music because it's actually all been written in a, uh, a dynamic, interactive way in that the, the music, there are pieces of music for daytime and for nighttime. And during the day, there's various different keys, et cetera. But all mm -hmm. the music during night, as I said, is all the same chord progression for the familiarity. Yeah. But at every dawn and dusk, there's a, a short transition piece that's literally a phrase that is either that sort of sunrise moment in the horns for dawn or <laughs> just sort of a, a, everything sort of calming down for evening. And it actually, it actually whatever's playing just sort of uh, brings it back down into the right key for the, for the night music to start. But then we have a piece of music that's called The People of Gamia, which is quite a long piece of music that plays every time you go into the, one of the towns. And, and it's lots of little character sort of themes that's supposed to depict all the little townsfolk. But this piece of music, every time you go into town, it's got like about half a dozen jump in points. And so if you go into town, leave town and come back, it will jump into a different spot. So you're getting like different sort of motifs for all the little people. So it's kind of like mm -hmm. telling stories musically for all the, the people. And then there's all sorts of little things like um, whenever there's kind of like a scripted sequence or a camera reveal, et cetera, I've got lots of little dynamic musical stings that accompany those. Um, but the music itself, I pulled influence from one of my other great loves, and that was growing up to Looney Tunes cartoons. <laughs> and so what I did was I, I, I 
I pinched one of the elements out of that in that every single note of every single piece is actually accompanied by a line in, in the harp. So there is a harp line that is muted 99.9% of the time that has a descending arpeggio that's in the exact right key for whichever piece of music it's on. So every single piece of music has this line. And so in the game, if you, if you um, step off a cliff or jump off a mountain, your character pops out a little parasol and you float down to the ground safely in Mary Poppins fashion. So every time this happens, it's accompanied by the perfectly in tune in the harp. The other element is that the, the underlying sort of umpa moving parts mm-hmm. are actually set to a much lower volume when you stop. So if, you, if your character stops, they kind of fade very quickly to almost nothing. They're still there, but they're, they're not quite as, as, as audible. And yet when you start running around, the umpa umpa bit comes up and accompanies you as you're, as you're bopping along the thing. So I've tried, to, I've tried to give it a little bit of underscoring because it's quite hard to actually underscore in games because of the, we don't know what the player's going to do. So mm-hmm. we, can't, we can't write music to completely match, but I've tried to put that element in as well. And of course, because Yonder's an open world game, it's very, very hard to predict what the player's going to be doing. Obviously, music is is critical to to everything I do. Um, I don't listen to as much music as I would like to because, unfortunately, my job involves having headphones on all day <laughs> listening to what my work. So I can't listen to music while I while I work. But I do listen to music um, when I drive, when I run, especially when I run. And music is 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 critical to to how I I do a lot of things. It is an emotional language, and it's very much an emotional language for me. And I think I've learned a lot of lessons and, and we, we, it's a language. Music is a language. And so, uh, as I was saying to you before, there are certain things that we do when we want to depict the hero as, as, as not doing very well or the hero is about to win or we're about to, we're about to let you know that something scary is about to happen or that there is a love scene that's, you know, there's a, you, know you quite often know that there's a, a romance about to happen between two people because the music lets you know about it before sure. it occurs. And so these are all, quite literally, this is a form of language that we use to communicate. And so with the approach to Yonder was uh, probably even threefold. There was, I need to have a certain approach to the orchestration to embody the, the Ghibli Miyazaki type thing to make sure that I was true to that form. I needed to have the, the orchestration and, and, and musical style appropriate for that, that level of innocence. And, and that's where um, strings are uh, incredibly important for that because strings give you that sense of openness and freedom, but also can, can embody that sort of innocence and, and character as well. And so the process very much comes down to, it's like an artist sitting there going, I'm going to paint a forest. And, and you and I would think, well, you know, when we were kids and we were finger painting or using crayons, it'd be a brown crayon for the, for the trunk of the tree and, and green for the leaves. Mm-hmm. And yet, I'm sure you, like I, have, have seen images in, in a gallery where the trees are all painted and the trunks are blue. 
mm-hmm. and the leaves are uh, the leaves are some sort of ochre colour or whatever. And not for a second do we look at that and go, oh, that's not right. Because <laughs> of the way the artist has interpreted it, it speaks to us in, in many different ways. And um, so, so a lot of my choices are like, what do I want to say? What, what is this piece specifically supposed to embody? It doesn't matter whether it's actually going to always be linked to that in the game, because not all, the, a lot of the pieces just sort of randomly came out. But it, one of the pieces I wrote is a piece that I call the grass fox pups. So there's creatures called grass foxes and, and there are, the, the young ones are very, very cute. And so it's a, it's a playful piece. It, it, of course it has the innocence, et cetera, but it's obviously a playful piece. So it's got pizzicato strings bopping along and, 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 yeah, and, and I guess tinkly little bells and stuff like that. So it, it comes down to what is it that I'm going to paint this time and what colours do I want to use? And sure, I might be painting a tree, but a tree at dusk as the sun comes down looks like it's on fire. So I'm not painting it brown and green. I'm painting it orange and yellow and vibrant red. And, mm. and so I do the same sort of things with my orchestral colours, which is the instruments that I use. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You talked about, you know, VR just briefly uh, in in the early moments when we were talking about Yonder, how it's not a VR game, but there are VR-like qualities that you were able to kind of integrate musically in with the sound. And I know that you're working on VR projects, um, and it's been fascinating over the last, I'd say, six to eight, maybe ten months to finally start talking to composers about VR projects that are finally coming out and things along those lines. Um, I just would love to hear you talk more about that and, you know, how that changes your perspective on music and sound or uh, just what what this new tool is is like for you as a composer. So... I have, uh, literally in the last couple of weeks, I've just submitted a book that I was commissioned to write, um, mm. which is going to come out um, in time for GDC next year. And it, and it is, the I believe it's going to be the first book on audio for VR. And, and it is it is actually called, you know, um, Audio for VR, AR, MR, 360 video. Um, and I have spent the last two years doing research for uh, various companies. I worked um, with George Sanger's team at uh, Magic Leap. I've done work with the Facebook Spatial Audio team, and I'm currently working on three VR projects all at the same time. <clears throat> and my realization through all of this is, I think that we are at we are at a a, a major crossroads. And if I if I uh, quickly explain. You know, the whole idea of how humans have communicated and how entertainment as an industry has grown up. We've gone from the still image, the still photographic image from a couple of hundred years ago, that then we managed to to make that move. And that became moving pictures, cinema, film, movies. From that technology, we then added in audio and we have audio recordings. And then we developed uh, t- television, which is kind of a sort of a, an offshoot. It was similar sort of technology, but it was kind of, they're related, but very, very closely and, and mm-hmm. sort of moved in parallel. And then we, we evolved um, games. And those, again, have some differences, but they're all, st- I still think that if, if I'm describing this whole thing as being a, a, a railroad track, Mm-hmm. A train line. These are all on the same train line. We've just we've updated the train that's pulling the carriages, and <laughs> we're heading in that we're heading in the same direction. So if we if if we want to Im- imagine it as this is a, a nice straight train line that runs from Los Angeles to New York. Um, sorry, my geography is not that good. I know it'd be a, a wibbly line, but a line across <laughs> America. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 
if if all of our information and entertainment technology so far has been at, on that train line and we've just been updating and upgrading as we go, mm-hmm. VR and AR are not on the same train line. They are not just developments of the same technology that are going to take us to the same destination. And it's not even that the train, it's not even that we've now built a new train line that's going to veer off and take us up to Canada. <laughs> when I worked with George Sanger, uh, he gave me the best possible explanation of this. And, and in fact, I, it's, it's pretty much the last sentence. I quoted George as the last sentence in my book. I said to George at one point, George, this is incredible. This is like we are trying to put somebody on Mars. Like the, the, the whole feel of it, the technology and everything like that. I feel like we're trying to put somebody on Mars. And George looked at me and he said, no, Stefan, this is not like we're trying to put somebody on Mars. This is like we're trying to send Disneyland to Mars. <laughs> and and, and he, he captured the essence of it so brilliantly because it really is, this is so new, so fresh, so different. I, I would put money on it right now if I was a betting man. I would say that the types of experiences that, are, uh, that we are going to be able to enjoy in 10 years' time, you and I cannot even imagine right now because we don't have the vocabulary to, to imagine them and discuss it. And so bringing that back to what you're talking about with, with sound and music, I am incredibly excited because – I don't even know what I'm going to be able to do. Um, There are some things already in in my research. There are things that are incredible that most people don't even realize. So if we, so so one of the main things about, just to explain quickly, with audio for these experiences, it's what we call spatial audio. And we're we're used to surround sound, which is, you know, two speakers in front of you, two speakers behind you, and, Mm -hmm. and, you know, extensions of that. Um, And that's what cinema surround sound is. Spatial audio is, it's a 360 spherical bubble around you. And so a sound can be anywhere. It can be 45 degrees to your right and 17 degrees elevated upwards on a, on, a, on that sort of an angle. Mm-hmm. And so it functions or it's, it's supposed to function exactly the same way we hear sound. So when we're outside, we know that the birds are up. We know yeah. that the crickets are down and off to our left, etc. But what a lot of people don't realize and that you might be interested to know is that if I play you music, so if I'm, if I'm crafting music and I'm trying to position the music for you, if I play you low strings or low brass, you will automatically assign those to being lower in elevation. So if, if you have the horizon directly in front of you that's at eye level mm-hmm. and I play you low sounds, you automatically assign them to being below the horizon. And I'm not even sure why, and, and, and the research doesn't clarify exactly why. If I give you piccolo and high strings, you will automatically lift them above the horizon. Now, mm. this is fascinating for many reasons, but it also means that, one, we can choose to basically go along with this, but it also means we can choose to purposely go against it. Yeah. And so what's that going to do to people? I mean, you're wanting to play something that's spooky and unsettling and like think about, you know, trombones doing that whole <laughs> sort of that sort of long, <laughs> slow slide. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you're positioning, you're changing the position of it so that it's actually lifting up above the horizon. Mm. Things like that are going to be inherently unsettling for people. And so we're going to be able to do things with sound and music in, in virtual reality and alternate reality that we've never dreamed of. And, and I'm starting to experiment with some of those things now on some of the VR projects that I'm working on right right this minute. And it is really, really quite 
it's very much it's very exciting, but it's also this we don't know what we don't know. Yeah. So I'm I'm quite literally stumbling around in the dark, poking things with a pointy stick, seeing how they react. <laughs> well, and you mentioned you know how there's an up and down now, which there, that was just not even an issue in audio before it was stereo. You know whether it was surround or not, it's stereo. It's left and right, and now that there's up and down is fascinating. Well, it, it gives us one of the techniques that's used. Um, we, we talk about um, assigning spaces to things because if you've got an, uh, uh, one of the things about an orchestra is that it's very dense uh, sonically. You, you've got pretty much all the frequency ranges covered from, from you know, piccolo all the way down to d- double bass. And so from the point of view of what your ears are hearing, there's a lot of information there. And, and it can be a little bit overload. If it's a, it's a, if it's a loud passage, then you know it's like, oh, there's all these sounds from all across the frequency ranges coming at me. That's really, really intense. And so what we've done previously with stereo is we try to give it space by going, all right, well, we'll, we'll put the trumpets over to the left and we'll put the strings over to the right. So that's simplified. But so what it does is it's like, oh, okay, cool. So I've got a bit of space to what I can hear to them. Think about a spherical space now. I can literally isolate those instruments and put one at two o'clock up in the air and one at you know eight o'clock down low and another one at eight o'clock up high and so you can you can now basically completely envelop the the listener in in sound and but what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to learn the language of doing this we're going to have to learn how to do it because we don't want it to be a gimmick the very first stereo when they did the Beatles they literally just got Paul and Ringo and put them on one side and 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 George and, and now I've got a mental blank. Um, <laughs> what was the other? George, Paul, Ringo, Ringo, George. Paul, who's the fourth uh, one? Paul, John, John, John. John, John. And we're John right. so that one. Like, <laughs> and if you listen to them through headphones, I can't believe we just had a complete mental blank on the people. That's wonderful. Well, when you say Paul and Ringo, you don't, you, you don't normally, it's just like a weird way to... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't great. know where that came from. But yeah. the point is, they had two on one side and two on the other side. And if you listen to the early Beatles re- recordings through headphones, it just sounds bizarre. Yeah. It literally is like all on one side and all on the other side. And so they were still trying to get used to it. And so we will have this same thing with, with spatial music and audio. Initially, we'll be doing things and people will be like, that's just weird. But over time, we will refine the techniques. And I think it's going to be r- amazing. And one of the other things, I, I've, I've been doing some experiments for my own because I'm, I'm crafting some music at the moment specifically as tests within this. We can create a thing that's called parallax. So parallax is with the old, going back to the old Looney Tunes um, cartoons, what they would have is they would have two backgrounds. So they would have the backgrounds off in the right off in the, the back, the furthest ones, which would be the mountains. Mm-hmm. And then they would have another layer closer to you that were the trees. And so when they moved, they would move at different speeds. So that gives you the sense of, of distance. Mm-hmm. With spatial audio, we can actually do audio parallax. So if I've got, say I've got a, a string quartet that's all around you, you know, just literally like surround you. And I put another cello that's further back because of the way this works, if I turn my head or I move my body, the cello that's at the back is going to move position separately to the cello that's just in front of it. And so what we're getting now is a, a, a essentially a sonic depth of field. Mm-hmm. This is getting very, very complex, but, it, but there's, just, there's all these sorts of exciting things that we are going to be able to experiment with yeah. that are going to become new toolboxes, new colors, new brushes 
for us to sort of paint TM our 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 pieces of music and our and our sound design. Mm-hmm. So it's it's super exciting, but it's also intimidating because none of us know how to do it. Yeah, I mean it's it's been like I said, just fascinating to talk to you composers about this, and it seems like you know ever since day one of video games, the audio people have just been pushing, pushing, innovating, 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 and. It's just really cool. It's almost like the growth and development never stops. It's just there are constantly more opportunities for composers to do well, and sound designers, audio directors, you know, fill in the blank, to do really cool things with audio and games. It's amazing. I think it comes from, and I'll tie this back to to sort of where the conversation started in some ways, we have a wonderful community that's supportive. And so when somebody says, hey, I'm going to do this crazy, risky thing, everybody's like, awesome, how can we help? <laughs> but also because I think to a person, all the people that I know in, in, in game audio, we love what we do. We really love what we do. And so it's not a job where it's like, oh, I've got to go to work and I've got to do this thing. It's something where there is so much satisfaction in what we do that it allows us the mental and emotional energy to go, what can I add to this? How can I take this project to 11? How can I, how can I do something that I haven't done before? And I mean, some of the people, you know, if I just throw some names out there, and I'm going to start with the one who's been my, one of my biggest inspirations for dynamic stuff, and that's Guy Whitmore. <laughs> the guy is a genius. Yeah, he's an he is. absolute genius. And and the work that he does is stuff that I just is constantly um, inspiring me. Mike Moraski and the music for Portal Two, and, and and the fact that it is actually dynamic in the game. Yeah. One of the pieces of music, the main melody is coming from the companion tube, and you pick up the companion tube and you carry the melody around with you. When you put it down, <laughs> the melody stays where the companion cube is, and the rest of the music is kind of within the space. These, these sorts of things are so clever, um, and they're just and they're so enjoyable for for us to experience. That we go, oh wow, that was really really clever. What can I do? that is that clever? What can I do that's going to continue the good work that they've done and honour the work that they've done and try and actually encourage people to take it to the next level? And so we're constantly, I guess, as a, a you could say it's a bit of healthy competition, but I don't see it as that. I see it more as we're, we're continually honouring each other's work because we, we we're, as I was saying, we're, in most cases, we're friends or at the very least respected colleagues. And so there's constantly this, this thing of like, this person did something similar to the project I'm doing now and they did this really, really cool stuff. I want to emulate that and I want to I want to maintain the legacy that they created and I want to take it further. would like to specifically say thank you very much to the developers because the support that I got from the developers was incredible and I think this is one of the things that matters and it's actually worth saying I there's been some very very good comments about the audio in Yonder and I'm very thankful for that but the reason why I could do what I did 
is because whilst, as I said before, whilst I might have created all of the sound content and all of the music content, it was still a very, very close and important collaboration. In this particular case, it was a collaboration with the designers and the implementers, the programmer who basically kept adding little tools and little functionality to allow the music to transition seamlessly from from day to night and who put in these parameters that allowed me to essentially create migratory patterns for the birds etc amazing and the core team of yonder is three people and so i would really encourage yeah this is the point it was three people i would really encourage indie developers to from day one talk to their audio people listen to their audio people and work out what can you collaborate on? How can you take your game and make it something really, really special? Because all of the, all of the indie games out there that are recognized as being really, really special. And I mean, things like the monument valleys and the journeys and all of these sorts of things Mm -hmm. have all got really excellent audio and music. And that is part of how you make a really special project. Every single element of your project needs to be special and needs to be carefully thought out and crafted. And and the audio is audio is one of the key ways in which you can communicate with your audience. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I would really, really like to say thank you to the to the Prideful Sloth developers, but I would also like to really encourage other people talk to your audio people from day one mm-hmm. and work with them and you can make real incredible magic with your projects. Thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you. Thank you very much, Emily. It's been an honor and a pleasure. And and I very much want you to let me know if you're going to be at the GDC in the future so that we can actually catch up face to face. Will do. Thanks for listening to episode 81 of Level with Emily Reese. You can learn more about composer Stefan Schutz at stefanschutz.com and see a playlist at patreon.com slash level. I'm Emily Reese. Sam Keenan is our producer. Say hi, Sam. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Level with Emily. And learn more about us at levelwithemily.com, made possible by Adam Selvage at Tiki Web Services and composer Brad Gentle. Level with Emily Reese is a production of June Media Incorporated. <laughs>